Do you know that most moments don't leave a trace? Think about it. It's disturbing. Only the most striking parts of your existence are remembered, which means that you don't remember the majority of your life. You have, roughly, the three seconds of your present moment, plus a mostly inaccurate and decaying memory of around 1% of your past. And that's it. The rest fades away. Who are you? What have you done? Does any of it matter? The doorbell rings, and I take my time in answering it. Outside, in the smoky orange autumn air, stand a couple with matching frowns. Marriage counselling is usually below my pay grade. I'm a neuroscientist, but Mrs. King had begged me over the phone. She was sick with guilt and regret. Her husband was no longer talking to her. I was busy and non-committal at the time and suggested they see a relationship therapist, but she was adamant. She'd pay double my regular fees, she said, triple. So I agreed to take their case. I'll charge her half. It's not like I need the money. I lead the kings into my neat lounge, which doubles as my consulting room, and settle them with tea. It's professional enough. I've recently downsized and embraced super-minimalism, so it's not unlike a psychiatrist's room if you ignore the blinking lights and the hum of my electronic equipment. Mr. King eyes my whiskey cabinet, but booze and brain manipulation is seldom a good idea. The troubled couple sit up straight, not touching, not looking at one another. I had an affair, says Mrs. King, and Mr. King winces, a kick in the shins. I see. I watch them without judgment, but also without warmth. It's best not to get emotionally involved in these things. She squirms. I feel terrible about it. I always feel terrible. I turn to Mr. King. And how do you feel? His cheeks colour, his balding head shines, his mouth is crimped downwards. He's angry, she says. Bitter. He'll never forgive me as long as he lives. I look at Mr. King, still waiting for an answer, but none is forthcoming. It wasn't really an affair, she says. Just a once-off thing, a stupid thing. I had had too much to drink at an office party. It didn't mean anything. You always say that, says Mr. King in a low voice that simmers with fury. What? You always say it didn't mean anything, as if that somehow mitigates the betrayal. You know what I mean. Her eyes are moist and pleading. You risked our entire marriage for someone who didn't mean anything to you, says Mr. King, and you think that will make me feel better. I don't mean it like that, she says. I just mean I don't have feelings for him. It doesn't matter, he says, turning his head further away and looking at the blank wall. It doesn't matter anymore. Mrs. King shoots me another look of desperation. He wants a divorce. Sixteen years of a bloody good marriage and he wants to throw it all away. I'm not the one, he murmurs, who threw it all away. He'll never forgive me. He lords it over me every day. Won't touch me or talk to me. Mrs. King crosses her arms and falls back into the couch. I think she's about to sulk, but then I see silent tears rushing down her face. The kings haven't touched their tea. Okay, I say. This seems like a pretty straightforward case. You'd like your husband's knowledge of the affair erased? 
They nod, and Mrs. King speaks again. And mine. I want to feel as if it never happened. Personally, I don't think it will work. I mean, I can erase the affair, but I can't erase the underlying reason for the affair. People in happy marriages seldom cheat. I place my hands on my knees and smile. That seems like a good solution. I don't think it will save their relationship, but I'll try my best to delete all the pain I can. Mrs. King sits up again and wipes the mascara from under her eyes. Does that mean you'll do it for us? We can do it this afternoon, if you like, I say, right now. It's a relatively simple process. Mrs. King's face crumples up again. Thank you, she sobs. Thank you. I, of all people, know that no one is immune to blunders. Before we begin, I have one more question for them. If you were to go on a second honeymoon, where would you go? I take them to separate but connected rooms and ready my equipment. I place one of the helmets on Mrs. King's head and I back up her prefrontal cortex and get to work erasing the dalliance which has caused so much trouble. Tequila and pineapple shooters, cheap white wine in a paper cup, 80s music, two minutes against the hard edge of an office desk, vomiting into a garden bed painted black by the night sky. If I didn't care about Mrs. King, I would limit my work to that. But instead, I track through the subsequent memories, the confession, the fights, the stonewalling, and I plant a false memory there instead. A second honeymoon in Franchuk, where the couple eat at expensive restaurants and go for long walks and wine tasting and have particularly good sex. Once you've had your memory erased, it's common to feel that something is missing. It was a thought loop that was taking up a lot of your mental bandwidth and now it's gone. The brain abhors a vacuum and you no longer have that thing to reach for. Yes, you reach for bad memories, even though the experience is unpleasant. It's like the compulsion to probe a sore tooth with a tongue. It's difficult to just leave the pain alone. So I replace the bad memories with happy simulations. It's not challenging. Your brain does most of the work. I just plant the seed and give it a loose structure, and your imagination does the rest. For Mr. and Mrs. King's second honeymoon, I process a paired simulation so that they have equal creative contributions. Perhaps Mrs. King wanted to water ski, but Mr. King wanted to read. It's no problem when their neural pathways are connected. You might think it's morally wrong or overly manipulative, to plant a false memory. It may remind you of that troubling branch of psychotherapy which was popular in the 90s that resulted in patients mixing up their dream analysis with uncovering supposedly repressed memories with consequences of false accusations of physical and sexual abuse, alien abduction and demonic possession. But I have no ethical ambivalence about what I do. If I can make someone happier, whatever that means, with the tools I have, why wouldn't I? You could say it's like hypnotherapy, but on a much deeper level, at a cellular level, because it's not only your brain that holds memories. A client of mine brought her obese son in last week. Zaid's eight years old and weighs close to 70 kilograms. He hates exercise and is addicted to gaming and junk food, and his poor mother was desperate and out of options. This time, I planted unpleasant memories. I simulated bouts of food poisoning from candy and fast food and added feelings of intense anxiety and grief associated with his game slate. 
but it wasn't all doom and gloom. I added a few happy moments that revolved around running, swimming, and basketball, and did some positive reinforcement of healthy food. But that's like lying, I hear you say. Lying to a child. Well, the tooth fairy would not be happy, would she? Nor would Santa Claus. You think playing with memory is a dangerous thing, and the truth is, it can be. You think planting false memories, no matter the positive outcome, must be a bad idea. What you don't know is that memory is extremely fragile. It's a grey, delicate, unwavering thing. You think your memory of an important event is exactly how it happened. You're wrong. Even the most observant people make everyday memory mistakes. This has been proven over and over again in criminal courts. Eyewitnesses who swear they saw something or didn't see something are often flat-out wrong. Around three-quarters of the convicts exonerated in the US due to DNA technology were behind bars because of incorrect witness testimony. I often tell my clients to be careful what they remember. Some of them laugh, assuming I'm joking, but the more intuitive ones heed my advice. Not every memory will serve you. While a memory is a mental snapshot of a moment, it carries with it layers of emotion and texture and scent. Your experience will differ to the person who's standing right next to you, and as the moment is imprinted in your brain, it's coloured by your mood and life experiences. People mistake their experience for the truth. Memories are constructed and reconstructed. So if your memory is not as black and white as you imagine, if it's open to suggestion, your own and other people's, then manipulating it a little here and there seems less wrong, doesn't it? A moment of high emotional intensity will always create the most vivid memory. Where were you when the Twin Towers fell? Yes, of course, you remember. Weddings, births, deaths, these are our emotional cornerstones, days we need no help recalling. When it comes to bad memories, the mind naturally tries to suppress them, but this takes a lot of mental energy. It's not a healthy state of mind. Not if you, like most of the people on this earth, are eternally reaching for happiness. That's where I come in. I'm the eraser, the brain bleacher, the memory hacker. It's an easy, neat job to shine someone's mind. I back up each client's memory three ways before I do any cognitive washing. Sometimes there are glitches, errors, corrupted disks, but these things can usually be solved. The problems come in when clients want to remember what they previously paid to forget. I leave Mrs. King to luxuriate in her holiday simulation, while I start on Mr. King. After a successful backup, I scroll through his recent memory to scrub out his wife's confession and ensuing arguments. But I stop when I find something interesting. He's outside a hotel in Cape Town, wearing a smart suit. I can see his reflection in the high-gloss hotel exterior with cars zooming in the background. Business trip, I think, expecting to see a boardroom meeting, perhaps a lunch overlooking the ocean. Instead, he spends hours in his hotel room, watching porn and smoking cigarettes. Eventually, she arrives, a five-foot-ten blonde bimbo with a dress that hardly covers her nipples. A prostitute? No, a mistress. I sigh. Really, Mr. King? What a shame. What a cliché. 
It would be forgivable if he wasn't being such an asshole to his wife, allowing her to self-flagellate when his betrayal is so much more ambitious than hers. This affair isn't a once-off mistake. I see the same woman over and over in his memory, going back years. It takes me an hour to get rid of her. This extra work annoys me, and to make myself feel better, I add a small accident to their otherwise idyllic second honeymoon. In an unfortunate incident, Mr. King is distracted by a poster of a bikini-clad supermodel on the wall of a public restroom and gets his penis stuck in his zipper. I'm happy with the result. I don't stop there. I pickpocket his phone and erase all communication from his mistress. There isn't much. Mr. King is an expert at covering his tracks. And I delete her contact information. I'm almost sorry I won't be a fly on the wall when she tries to call him again. When we're finished, I lead the Kings to the front door. They both seem a bit disorientated, which isn't unusual. They'll catch an Uber home and have a rest, allowing their minds to consolidate the new memories. I wave them goodbye and wish them happiness, and wonder if they'll ever be back. I'm glad I accepted their case. I found dealing with Mr. King's mistress especially satisfying. I don't take on all the clients that come my way. One of the first jobs I was ambivalent about accepting was to shine the mind of a young woman who couldn't get over the heartache of a miscarriage. Her doctor, a friend of mine from med school, recommended she see me. Over a glass of Pinot Noir on his balcony overlooking Table Mountain, he told me about her case. The woman was young and healthy and in a happy marriage, but she had suffered a traumatic miscarriage, started bleeding while on a crowded train, couldn't get hold of her husband, had to get off and walk in a neighborhood not familiar to her, bleeding and almost bent double by painful cramps. The overwhelming grief combined with the humiliation and anguish of the event scarred her. She started avoiding sex with her husband and changed the subject when he tried to discuss trying to conceive again. I did hesitate to treat her. I wondered what the implications of voiding her grief would be. I felt that erasing her memory of the miscarriage would, in a way, be erasing the baby too, and that made me feel uncomfortable. I know from experience that it's important to process these things, to accept your loss in order to move beyond it. But the more I got to know her, the more I realized there was no advantage in her remembering that day. She was sliding into depression and wrecking her relationship on the way down. So I agreed. I haven't seen her since the erasure, but my doctor friend tells me she is on the mend. I didn't ask for details. I do still think of that baby, though. I have dreams that he or she is floating in the cosmos, lost in space. Another would-be client was devastated by the loss of her Siamese cat and asked me to bleach her memories of him. I explained to her that although she was feeling shattered now, the pain would ease and she'd soon be able to remember him with joy and affection. They had shared 16 happy years together. It would be a shame to strip that from her life. I turned that job down. I think that was a good call. But sometimes I make mistakes. A man wanted me to delete all the memories he had of his fiancée, who had left him at the altar. Initially, I agreed to do the job. Daniel seemed excessively morose, and I did think it was rather cruel of his beloved not to show up at the wedding after a year's engagement. He still had her wedding dress, he told me. He clung to it and slept with it at night. That set off the first alarm bell, although I didn't pay it much attention. 
The other clues revealed themselves to me in viewing his recollection of the courtship, which got creepier and creepier the more I watched. There were hundreds of framed pictures of her and them together as a couple in his house. He used to check her phone while she was in the shower and hold her still warm clothes to his face and smell them for minutes at a time. He'd surprise her at work and at drinks with her friends and compulsively check to make sure she was wearing her engagement ring. He'd surreptitiously ruin the dresses of hers he didn't like and buy her new ones that he approved of. He'd phone her often, too often, and expect her to jump to answer within a few rings every time, no matter where she was or what she was doing. If they argued, he would feign illness and blame his mood on not feeling well and she would cancel her plans in order to nurse him. He used to watch her sleep. One night, he covertly snipped off a strand of her hair, tied a ribbon around it, and placed it in his secret drawer, along with the other small trophies he liked to collect. Nothing he did was outright abuse, but his behaviour sent up so many red flags in my brain that I couldn't let him get away with it. I thought he must remember his disappointment with this girl, Annika, her name was, scribbled all over any scrap paper lying in the house and perhaps he'd cool it with his next crush. Perhaps he would learn not to be so obsessive. But I was wrong. In the summer after refusing to take Daniel's case, Annika's body was found in a burnt-out car in Kailicha. It was set up like a hijacking gone wrong, and a local gang member was arrested. But I knew the truth. I took the data drive of Daniel's memory footage to the detective on the case and offered to project it on his wall but he had more dead bodies on his hands than staff members, and it suited him to leave Annika's murder as open and shut. When I lost my temper with him, telling him that Daniel would do it again, the detective eyed me suspiciously and told me I knew way too much about the couple's relationship, that it was unnatural, and touched the silver handcuffs on his belt. Did I really want to be questioned? He wanted to know. It was clear he meant as a suspect and not as an informer. Annika's face still haunts me. She was so young and so innocent-looking. I could have saved her life, but instead her body lies in ashes. Every now and then, when the guilt topples me, I go to see Daniel. I stalk him silently, hiding in the shadows. I look through his windows for pictures of new women. Once, I found him on a date with someone new, a pretty redhead, and I couldn't sleep for a week, imagining her hair being snipped off, her wrists bruised. Sometimes, I still wake up to the scent of paraffin and a jest-struck match. Annika's black skeleton haunts me, but living people haunt me too. I have all the stories here in my library, thousands of hours of backed-up memories. Mostly, I respect my client's privacy enough to leave the footage alone. There is one exception, though. I pour myself a whiskey from one of the bottles Mr. King was looking so longingly at, and dim the lights. I get comfortable on my favourite couch and close my eyes for a moment. I breathe deeply to settle my thoughts and my heart. When I feel ready, I press play. Memory footage of two young children appear on my cine screen. They're playing in the back garden, chasing each other, laughing, screaming. They thrust their arms forward in Superman poses and jump off the edge of the raised vegetable beds. A dog comes into frame, a beautiful golden lab, and barks at the twins' excitement. I listen out for the woman's laugh. I know exactly where on the track it is. I've watched this and her other deleted memories a thousand times. 
Some of my favourites are of her looking in the mirror so that I get to see her face. Those memories act as a booster to my own. I remember the feel of her skin, the scent of her hair. Sometimes I just get a glance as she checks her eye makeup on her way out of the house. Sometimes it's luxuriously long as she bathes in front of the wide horizontal mirror in the bathroom. My mood starts to spiral, so I take a deep sip of my single malt and pull my thoughts back to the picture in front of me. We're in the garden and the sun is shining. She laughs again at the rough housing of the kids, the excited dog, then turns her head to look behind her. And that's when I see a younger version of myself. Scruffy hair, happy, standing at the grill, turning some meat with silver tongs. I look up at her and smile. I always hate myself then. Hate how smug I looked, how young and unscarred and infuriatingly unaware of the danger in the world. I hate how I took it all for granted. Complained even about the messiness of the kids, the noise they made. Moaned about the broken nights of sleep and the crumbs on the floor. How golden it all looks now, in retrospect. I sit in my neat, minimalist apartment in the near dark. There is no noise and there are no crumbs on the floor. How quickly life changes. How much I wish I could go back in time and savour those lost moments. What I do for a living now could be seen as a specialist branch of time travel. If only I had the technology to rewind real life. I turn off the screen and sit back into my chair, cradling my whiskey glass in the dim light. I wonder how my wife is, what she's doing today. I feel the familiar urge to drive over to see her, but it's nothing more than a fantasy. She wouldn't recognize me. We used to love each other, madly and intensely. But she doesn't remember me anymore. The End